Hello, fellow hospital dwellers and those who listen to us online. Welcome to They Don't Make Them Like They Used To, a weekly nostalgic trudge through filmmaking excellence of years gone by. And by years gone by, we mean pre-1980. With me in the studio are Sean. Hiya. And Joe. Good evening. Now, Joe, you've been a little bit busy on the old editing machine in this past week, haven't you? Yes, I have. Okay, you want to tell us a little bit about what it is you've been doing? Um, well, I think it's the spirit of, of the movies and cinema in general kind of got me sort of swept away. And I thought this show deserved um, to uh, benefit from that, that sort of uh, magic. Okay, so here's some of Joe's work over the last week. It's a 30-second preview of what you can expect from us over the next hour. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. It's me, Shere Khan. This show is not just about us here in the studio, just picking films and talking about things that we love. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We also want to find out what your experiences are with movies. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They don't make them like they used to. Tune in every Friday at 6, only on Sunshine Radio. Did you guess what film it was? Is it safe? Love it. Now, we will have films that we have picked as bona fide classics. And we will also have an opinion from, the ho- from people within the hospital and possibly even some people on Facebook. We'll have a movie legend quiz and a film made post-1980, I know, scandalous, that we think can stand beside some of the classics that we've chosen. So, Joe, you're up first with the film choice this week. Do you want to tell us what film you've chosen? Well, uh, I, as everyone knows, three weeks and weeks of me going on about it, <laughs> I quite like this chap called Alfred Hitchcock. Um, And when he first arrived in Hollywood, he decided to make one of the greatest films ever made. That is, of course, Rebecca. Cool. So, Rebecca, this is originally a book written by Daphne du Maurier with one of the most famous opening lines in English literature history. That's, last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. Earlier, I walked around the, well, earlier today, I walked around the hospital and I met Chris and Janet in Alveston Ward. And here are some of Janet's recollections of the book. I just remember it's very well written and it's because it's in Cor- set in Cornwall. I mean, that interests me. And I remember reading the whole of the book in one day, which I don't often do. But that was, yeah, I do remember enjoying it and I have seen a televised version at some point. It's just a good story, basically. So, more on that televised version later. But, Joe, she says it's just a good story, basically. So, tell us, did Hitchcock do it justice? Hitchcock made it his own uh, and managed somehow to balance doing what he wanted to do with doing exactly what he was told by David O. Selznick. And if you can balance all those things, I think, and and come out with a film that wins the Best Picture Oscar, you've you've done well by me. (laughs) All right, so tell us a little bit about the story, for those who don't know about it. Okie dokes. So, um... Laurence Olivier, standing on a cliff, um, you're introduced to this guy through um, the wonderful character played by Joan Fontaine, that was when I fell in love with Joan Fontaine, and you're you're sort of drawn into this strange backstory about this guy, uh, Mr. De Winter, and what's happened in his previous uh, relationship at this fantastic house, uh, the, the, the Mandalay from the opening lines. Um, and you, you sort of get caught caught up in what, what Joan Fontaine's character has to go through to become part of this family. And, and, and you, you find out that the, the things that have gone on before weren't as straight or, or as uh, obvious as you might first think. Uh, I see that you're being very coy. I'm trying, trying to not to <laughs> say too much. Yeah, yeah, so. Trying try not to give away anything that happens yes, or, right. like, or, or things that, get, that, that, be, that be, get revealed as the story goes on. That's right. It's one of those things that you, once you start, you've got to watch to the end because you, you can't turn it off because you want to know what's going on. It's great. Sean, have you seen it? I've seen it, yeah. yeah. I've, I really enjoyed it. As I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not as quite as big Hitchcock fan as, as Joe. I mean, great, great director, done some great films. But this film... Rebecca is probably one of his best films, I think. Um, 
There's some great scenes in it. There's one particular scene. I don't know if I can mention it without spoiling. You can, you okay. can, yeah, it's a great scene. It's a beautiful Should, moment. So maybe I shouldn't do that. But anyway, it's just let's just say it's it's the dress scene, which I just think is is just an amazing scene. I don't want to spoil oh, it for anybody. Oh yeah, yeah. So the, 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 yeah, you the, can the, say it. But she comes down the stairs. Yeah. She, she <laughs> thinks she thinks she's done a fantastic thing. Yeah. She's found this dress, and she's that. all. She's all bubbling and proud yeah. of herself, and she comes down, and Laurence Olivier is just. You know, I mean, I mean I'm not. I'm not normally sort of very emotional in films. I don't. But I thought, oh, I just really yeah. felt for it. You just want to give her a yeah, hug and say, oh, oh you look great. Because she was so chuffed. She yeah. was so happy. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So I saw this film for the first time a couple of days ago because it's. Um, I got tired of us having this show, and every now and then I'd have to come out and go. Oh, actually, I don't think I've seen that film. Oh, I don't think I've seen that film. <laughs> so I decided that this week I was going to make a change and actually watch the films before we got here. And it is because it's a Hitchcock. I think, as you say, it's one of it is the early Hollywood Hitchcock. Yeah. So it's different from what. I think before he found his signature style, so this, uh, I, I, would, I would say, because you usually expect from Hitchcock, you expect the thriller, the um, the um, mistaken identity, the ordinary man thrown into extraordinary circumstances and all that sort of stuff. And once you have a film that's called Rebecca to begin with, you think, hang on, this is a bit different. And it's so it, it's a lot more, it's a lot less action packed than any Hitchcock I think I've seen. And it's a lot more sort of thoughtful and almost psychological than most of those. Would you say? I would say it wasn't even a Hitchcock film uh, <laughs> in 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 terms of what Hitchcock, you know, would normally choose as a as a project. It's a David O. Selznick film. Yeah. I mean, this this was you know a, a year or or so after got after the the hype of Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Um, made by the same producer Selznick, and and he wanted another success. I mean, you look you look who was in Gone Gone with the Wind, and, and and she's married to the star of Rebecca. You look at Joan Fontaine; she's the sister of Olivia de Havilland from Gone with the Wind. These two are very much uh, almost sisters in films. I think they're both yeah. long; they're both sprawling. One's a Hitchcock, so it's automatically better. But <laughs> but there's, there's, they're like um, biased there. Yeah, but they they they're of, a, of the same sort but, of uh, but There's some fabulous actors in this film as well. Oh, some yeah. great character yeah. actors. I mean, apart from one of Joe's favourites, oh, George Sa- Sanders. But oh. the, the character that really stood out for me um, was the. The lady, Mrs. Danvers. Judith, oh, come oh. on. She's I, a scary, scary she's scary. scary but yeah. she's, uh, she's been in a few. She always plays sort of quite a, a scary role in films. She's not one of these like, oh, you know. Yeah. But she really, she, she had that real look of evil about her, didn't she? She, Did told, you yeah, she totally, uh, the thing is, why I loved about it was the fact that she does she does a lot with not much. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. Where, when she walks in and like from the first moment that she walks in and she looks at the new Mrs. De Winter and you can just see like just with the uh, yeah. it's, it's the definition <laughs> of the word withering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it gives yeah, yeah a yeah. withering look. This could have been withering heights, couldn't it? <laughs> 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 it's just it's just kind of like look at her just kind of like yeah. a I don't like you and I never will. It it won't look. And I remember it. I remember that there's this there's a scene in it when you talk about and it's a small thing where I uh, think the new Mrs. The Winter breaks, she breaks like a little, it's like a porcelain doll or something mm. like that. And she's also, because she, she's in this new, she's in these new um, environments. Everybody keeps talking about this former Mrs. The Winter, Rebecca, like everything around here just reminds her, but she feels like she's not, she's not in her own place, even mm. though she's supposed to be the lady of the house. So she breaks it, so she hides the thing that she's broken. And then later on, uh, there's a bit where Mr. De Winter calls Mrs. Danvers in and says, yes, yes, she broke it. She thought that you were going to read her the riot or, the, or she acted yeah. like you were going to send her to jail. And she just has this look on her face yeah. that does... It, she I doesn't mean, need to, does she? She doesn't she, need to say yeah, I mean, She doesn't need to say anything. It's like one of the... It's, it's one of the best things that one of the best performances i've seen for not saying much much yeah and it makes it and then she has this one scene where she actually it's almost kind of like the car has been idling in like second gear for a while then she has one scene where she goes like full throttle yeah, yeah, yeah. and you see like the full mrs danvers and you're yeah. like what oh, that's that's when you realize how important to the story she is but up to that point you haven't realized the significance of this character and then suddenly you begin to realize that she's far more involved in the previous uh, events than we first thought yeah, and she's a she's a little bit of a of a psycho. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think that's why that character has become. I think probably when it comes to popular literature or like films or anything like that, the character of Mrs. Danvers has sort of transcended and has traveled into all sorts of different mediums, just because of 
I think probably because of that performance. Performance, yeah. Because of that performance. It's just amazing. It's, it's just amazing. But when you say about the performances, I think Laurence Olivier, and thinking about, because even you talk about Selznick and Selznick setting up his heroic men, because I was watching most of Rebecca thinking, Olivier looks a bit like Clark Gable. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. It's quite, it's quite like, funny. Yeah. I was watching it like, even, does, yeah. even the posters and everything like that, where he's holding John Fontaine, I'm like, this looks very Clark Gable-y. I mean, it's like with the pencil-thin mustache. It looks very Red Butler. Like he's he's dressed up to look like that, and I've and I thought his his performance is quite understated but brilliant. Yeah. Especially in that first scene you were talking about, where he's in Monte Carlo on the on the hilltop, the first words and everything. You just you get this character fully formed in like ten seconds. So yeah, That's I agree. A, there's there's some other good actors in it as well. And I know they're only they're not some major parts, but. You got old Nigel Bruce. He used to be be Doctor Watson in the Rathbone, um, in the Rathbone Sherlock Holmes thing. All right, he's in it. Oh, yeah. is he like one of the helpers in the house? One of the yeah, he's, the, he's the major. Them. He's okay. the major. And then you got C. Aubrey Smith, that actor that always plays like the the Colonel, and he's always <laughs> so. You got a couple of good good stock stock actors in there. Yeah, some good stuff. Yeah, but I'd also say George Sanders. George Sanders, because yeah. The, oh. Yeah, he that was, voice. He's so he's so incredibly slimy in this yeah. film. So <laughs> right from the moment he shows up, you're just kind of like, oh, I just want to punch you in the face. He's well, he's slimy. He's not quite as slimy as he is in All About Eve, but he's he's there. He's there. That, that last sort of act of the film where where they're sitting down and talking basically, and yeah. he's and he's involved in most of it. Yeah, he he takes over the film. It's like he yeah, he, he, he reaches yeah, he in, does. takes the film away from everybody else, and you're watching him and how he's reacting to what's going on. Okay, um, so, okay, just a couple of other things. That, um, just really, like the fact that when we talk about the book and uh, Jenna was talking about how the book was a great story and one of the things that's most um, noticeable about the book and notable about the book is the fact that it's narrated in the first person and you never get to learn the name of the narrator. Like, uh-huh. like you never. It's always like I, I, and people always call her the second Mrs. De Winter or mm. Mrs. De Winter. Mm. But they never. They they mention that oh, you've got a lovely name or that's an exotic sounding name. But mm. they never mention her name. Mm. And I thought that in the film they translated that really, really well. It's because I know Sel Oselznik had told Hitchcock that look, you have to do this. You have to be very faithful to the book. So no major flights of fancy. There was one thing they had to change because of the production code that kind of makes you look at Mr. De Winter in a different light to reading the book to watching the film, uh-huh. which I probably can say because it's a major plot point and we spoil the have, film. Have you read the book, Times? No, I haven't read the book. No. I haven't read the book, but uh, my wife has. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, while I was watching, I was watching it with her. And so I was asking her, so how does this work in the book? How does this work? But I could see just from watching the film how it would work as a very, very good book. Mm-hmm. The fact that you have the film, the, the book is the book and the film are named Rebecca which is after a character that you never see, <laughs> but is everywhere. I actually have a comment from Sharon, um, who's not here this week with us, but oh, she's, yeah? she's actually commented on, on the Facebook page for the show. Yeah, She said um, she's always felt that the heroine, played by Joan Fontaine, is so overshadowed by the ghost of Rebecca, and that's why we never find out her name. We never see or hear Rebecca, but she's in every scene. Yeah, That's the sign of great writing and great direction. I, I agree with that. I mean, yeah. I mean, watching the film, you do really get the sense of this Rebecca is everywhere without ever seeing her, which for me is a massive, massive achievement. That's the part of the psychology of, of, of Joan Fontaine's character, isn't it? It's, it's, that's what it's all about. She's, yeah. she's failing all the time to live up to these stories and, and, and things that have happened in the past. Oh man, I really want to have like a spoiler, spoiler, <laughs> allowed version chat of the about this film. Check out the extended version online with the spoilerific, <laughs> with the spoilerific bit, because it, because oh, when you just find out what actually happens, oh, such a. But anyway, we will be coming back to Rebecca later in the show, but more on that later. We'll be kind of coming back to Rebecca a little bit later on in the show, and um, but one of the other things is the score of the film, and one of the things I realized that watching the film, I was aware of the fact that almost. Almost, there's almost music all the way through the film and it's almost like uh, it helps set the mood helps set the tone it helps like you know help you think about Rebecca helps you figure out how crazy and scary Mrs. Danvers is it just adds to it and found out that the score was written by a guy called Franz Waxman now if you've been listening to the show you might recognize that name from last week because we spoke about the Bride of Frankenstein and that was another score by good old Franz Waxman now, Joe here is a little bit of a movie film. How would you put it, Joe? 
Uh, I like film scores very much. I don't listen to much music uh, that isn't a film score. That's, that's how all pervasive it is. All right, so Joe has put a little something together for us, all about Franz Waxman and what his influence on film is. So here it is. Hello, and welcome to the first in my series of brief love letters to the greats of Hollywood music. These are the composers that breathe life into some of the greatest films of all time. This week, we're trying on the clothes of the first Mrs. De Winter, staring in horror at the Bride of Frankenstein, and keeping a watchful eye on the apartment of one Lars Thorwald. That's right, all of these classic moments of cinema were underscored by the haunting themes of Franz Waxman. First off, as we listen to this most famous of film openings, pay attention to the dreamy score shimmering just beneath the narration. Last night, I dreamt I went to Manderley again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden the supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. The drive wound away in front of me, twisting and turning as it had always done. What would Rebecca have been without the gorgeous, timeless music of Franz Waxman? The impossibly delicate strings and lush melodies which accompanied Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier in Hitchcock's only Best Picture winner were provided by a versatile composer who is remembered just as much for his brass fanfares as these rich romantic themes. Born on Christmas Eve 1906 in Poland, it was clear from a very young age that Waxman had a gift, as his son John explains. My father, Franz Waxman, was a genuine wunderkind. A little kid, five years old, crawls up on the piano and starts playing by himself. And it was just a, his passion for his entire life. When he uh, graduated from high school, he said to uh, my grandfather, I want to go to music school. And he said, well, what kind of a job is that? You know, you've got to have a real job. You know, get, go to a bank. Thankfully, Waxman didn't work in a bank for long. He used the money he earned to pay for piano lessons, pursuing his dream of a career in music instead and moving to Berlin. By 1932, however, the Nazis had tightened their grip on society and Waxman fled Germany, moving first to France and then to Hollywood. In 1935, he burst onto the scene with his peculiar doomed score to the horror sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein. It was unusual for a sequel to enjoy such an inventive and impressive score, and Universal Pictures rewarded Waxman with a two-year contract as musical director. From then on, it was success after success. Testament to Waxman's versatility is the fact that he wrote the scores for both Rebecca and the Philadelphia story in tandem during 1940. Able to adopt a sweeping romanticism that predated John Barry, it would still be 10 years before he secured an Oscar 
But when it finally happened, he won two years in a row. In 1951 for A Place in the Sun, and the year earlier for Sunset Boulevard. Those idiot producers, those imbeciles. Haven't they got any eyes? Have they forgotten what a star looks like? I'll show them, I'll be up there again, so help me. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Now, when the master of suspense asks you to score his film, you don't say no. And Waxman collaborated with Hitchcock on four occasions, ending the collaboration that had begun with the classic Rebecca by scoring the masterpiece Rear Window in 1954. But it wasn't just thrillers that made Waxman such a giant. He could write music on an epic scale. A full two years before Elmer Bernstein's gigantic Ten Commandments, Waxman's chorals propelled the continuing story of the robe through the Sword and Sandals sequel, Demetrius and the Gladiators. Even the great Bernstein himself was impressed. When I arrived here, Franz Waxman was one of the giants. Uh, I arrived here in 1950, and uh, film music was full of giants at that time, when you stop to think of it. I mean, it was Franz Waxman, Nicholas Rozier, Max Steiner, Alfred Duman. It was an amazing town uh, with amazing people. With a range of work as varied and wonderful as film itself, the spirit of Franz Waxman can today be found in the scores of John Barry and Danny Elfman, and the sheer number of classics he wrote music for places him firmly in the hall of Hollywood legends. Well, Franz Waxman... I think you've turned all of us into like going to go one go by like you know now that's what I call Franz Hack Waxman hits <laughs> number one the yeah. album yeah oh he's great he's a legend an absolute legend um, like most of the as, as um, Elmer Bernstein said at the end there that was the time to be in Hollywood every single person writing music was a legend uh, and you you had a little bit of a rant earlier where you were talking about the difference between composers and film composers. You just want to like recap that for us quickly. I, yeah, I just feel like you, you, people name the greatest composers your Tchaikovsky's, your, your Beethoven's, people, things like that, and then they say you know that the film composers as if it's a lower order. I think some of the music written for films around the thirties, forties, and fifties is 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 equally as good. And you shouldn't be separated from being a composer to being a film composer. I think they're they're all equally as brilliant and it's not a lesser um, art form cool well said well said uh, I think also because of the well for me anyway I think just because making music to capture a certain mood and heighten something is quite a skill which which I think a lot of them had to do to actually be good at it alright anyway now we have every week a film class or well, a film legend quiz and now Joe would you like to kick us off with a first clue about the film legend of this week Okay, doke deliberately vague this week. Here we go. <laughs> if you had been a soldier fighting in the Battle of Arnhem in uh, 1944, is that right, Sean? Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, and you'd been wounded, there's a good chance that you would have been treated by this screen legend. Ah. So a screen legend who was in the Second World War and was part... In a medical capacity, you'd say. I would say that was a fair assumption from the clue, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Medical capacity, Second World War, in the Battle of Arnhem. Where's mm. that? That's not somewhere Dutch. That's, yeah, that's in Holland, that is. Oh, yeah, right, that cool. was Operation Market Garden, where they tried to capture a film, film made about a bridge too far. Mm. So, oh. So, uh, yeah, if you ever see a bridge too far, that's that's the story of, of Market Garden of Arnhem. That was the final bridge. Oh, wow. Cool. So, Good stuff. Good stuff. But it doesn't right. give me a clue on that. Yeah, does, oh, yeah, I know, I know. I'm just, I'm just sort of stalling for thinking time. And, <laughs> all right, we will carry on. We will have at least three more clues before the end of the show. But now, earlier on, I spoke about walking around the hospital and meeting Chris and Janet. Uh, we've already heard from Janet talking about her memories of Rebecca, the book. And now we're going to hear from Chris talking about the first time or oh, the first film that he ever saw in a cinema. Uh, the Alamo. 
But I went with my brother and it was one of the sort of Saturday morning cheap uh, shows that children used to go to at that time. Uh, and I enjoyed it very much, there was lots of action. And uh, I remember afterwards that a lot of the local children went out and bought Davy Crockett hats. And that was all the rage for, for months. Uncle, do you remember who was in it, or do you remember what the story was, or anything like that? Uh, no, I, I think it's something about the Mexican Revolution and uh, uh, Texas uh, uh, people. Uh, I mean, a, a strife of some description: the Mexican army against the, you know, the uh, new incumbents, and uh, yeah, that's all I remember really, apart from the blood and guts. <laughs> that's a bit. It's a bit gory for a kids' film, isn't it? Um, well, it was sort of like, you know, um, cap gun type shooting, it, you know, it wasn't, it, it was typical of the genre of, of that time, really. Um, it wasn't as realistic, perhaps, as some of today's films are, but, uh, yeah, we enjoyed it, and that was my first recollection of having gone to the cinema. So that was The Green Leaves, Leaves of Summer by Dimitri Timonkin, or Tiomkin, uh, from, the, from the Alamo, as uh, Chris told us, the first one that he ever saw in the cinema back in 1950, I think it was 1955 that the film was released. So um, I hand over now to our resident Western expert, <laughs> Sean, The Alamo. Yeah, The Alamo, great, great film. Um, Good music there, though, wasn't yeah. it? I think one of our listeners on 55 Days at Peking, the music, yeah. well, that was Dimitri Tionkin mm-hmm. as well. So, Yeah, I think, I think just sort of backing up your point about um, composers, composers. That is just be- that's just beautiful on any yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is. And it's, um, it's on a Tarantino film as well, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's the um, Inglorious <laughs> Guys. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Those guys. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this film's great. I, I, I think perhaps a little bit overlong, but um, nevertheless, a great adventure. Terrific, terrific battle scene at the end. Um, the story of the Alamo, which was uh, obviously Texas was part of Mexico or, or a territory of Mexico, and they wanted to become independent. Okay. They, they weren't part of the United States either, so the United States never got involved. But um, they wanted to be, there were some Mexicans, some Americans and other people, and they wanted to, I think they call it secede, don't they, when they wanted to come away from Mexico and form yeah. like, their own country. And I think even today there's an independence party now to secede from the, <laughs> the Union. But anyway, and uh, they they need to build an army. And because Santa Ana, who's like, the, he's got a huge army based on the French Napoleonic model. Yeah. Massive. So, you know, they were, and um, this guy, Sam Houston, needs to, to build an army. So he asked these guys to basically hold this little mission called the Alamo to, so that, you know, he's got time to train this army of, of militia and... So, so the Alamo is actually like the so the Alamo is like uh, the mission. The, the mission, yes, yeah, the mission. And and I've actually been to the Alamo, oh. and it's in San Antonio in Texas. Can you remember it? Yeah, <laughs> but it's like it's like the tiniest thing, and it's right in the middle of the city, and there's so many huge skyscrapers around it. It's quite bizarre, actually. Really? Yeah, really. It's right in the middle of all these big, big tall towers. Um, but an interesting place to visit. But to me, the, the person who stands out in this film is Lawrence Harvey, who plays William Travis, and he was basically, he was in command of the Alamo. He was the, the Texican that, that controlled the Alamo. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's you know, played by Lawrence Harvey, who I think is a terrific actor anyway. Um, he, he stands out for me. But the film itself is great, yeah. It's a nice, rip-roaring adventure, lots of action. Um, yeah, because, because like John, oh, sorry, not John, Chris was talking about how in the for, for him the film he saw it with her like when they were kids yeah. and it was kind of like the way he put it he said it was like a cap shooters kind of thing so it's almost kind of like pew 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 yeah, yeah, yay yeah. boys on adventure I guess you could put it on a par I always think uh, you could put it on a par with perhaps Zulu you know that, that yeah. sort of that action that I, I would put it on on the, the same level with Zulu probably not you know nothing particularly horrid in the later films like like, like you got in the later films um, but yeah, yeah, great action film. There was, I think, personally, the film about the Alamo, 
which was done before with Sterling Hayden, and that was 55. Yeah. And it's called The Last Command, and it's actually, it's it's the same, it's actually the same story, very, very similar theme, very, very similar film, in fact. You could say The Alamo was a remake, but the, the main character, Sterling Hayden, actually plays Jim Bowie, rather, right. than, rather than Davy Crockett, whereas John Wayne plays Davy Crockett. But, yeah, terrific film, good choice. Yeah, so well, with this, though, okay, so we have The, the Alamo. I know it, as Sean, I mean, Joe said earlier, with the whole remember the Alamo, it's, it seems to be a big thing. That's a big part of American consciousness. Yeah, and it also so it's a film that stars John Wayne, but you haven't mentioned him once. I know it's John Wayne. Well, he directed it as well. Oh, he actually okay. directed the film. Um, yeah, John Wayne is well. He's, he's got to play the superhero. And David Crockett, the legend, the legend. That um, I mean, King of the World, the world Frontier. Frontier. I mean, there's a TV series during the days of Eisenhower. Everybody used to wear Davy Crockett hats, you know, the yeah. raccoon hats with the tails. Everybody wanted to be Davy Crockett, and he's like a, like a, you know, he was like a legend that that fought Indians and you know thousands of them. And can I just say, so, I always remember that the Alamo took place on the fifth of November. Uh, uh, it's easy, not easy to forget, is it really? <laughs> not easy. To, yeah. yeah, right. But yeah, yeah, no. This is um, John Wayne. John Wayne obviously had the starring role, and um, uh, Richard Ridmark. Richard Ridmark, yeah, yeah Richard, Richard Ridmark yeah. was was played Jim Bowie, and right. they, they, they they quite liked it. But yeah. um, so yeah. it, it's based on a it's okay, so it's based on an actual event that happened. It that is, happened. Yeah, 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 and there was no survivors. So um, and then I think about two weeks later, Sam Houston, who trained up the army, there was a, a another battle. Um, I, I think it's called San Juanito or something like that, and and the Texan Sam Houston actually destroyed the Texan army, basically. So Texas managed to secede, and obviously that's why you got Houston in Texas. Because uh, oh yeah, as, a, as, yeah, a, yeah. as opposed and to Mexico. Oh, because it's named it, after him. It named after Sam Houston. Yeah. Oh. So so you got Houston in Texas, and then the capital of Texas, which is Austin. Um, there's a guy called um, Steve. Steve, yeah. <laughs> seriously, seriously, <laughs> right, you made me laugh. But he was like the governor of Texas. He was like the first, first, first. <laughs> Governor of Texas. Go, governor yeah, of, but Sam Houston was that the, guy was, was stone the general. Cold, man. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why Houston. That's why Houston's named Houston. All right. Okay. Cool. So now with this, um, with the because okay with with this um, because he oh, was yeah. mentioning or this version of the Alamo mm -hmm. and he was I mean it, there was a version that was made a couple of years back that Disney tried to make a it was kind of like a remake or just a retelling of the Alamo story and as um, Chris was mentioning in his interview that. Back then, those the uh, those didn't really happen. The films, he, to paraphrase him, it sounded like the films were a bit sanitized. Well, I, I don't know if we're talking about the um, the remake of the Alamo um, with well, Billy well, Bob Thornton. Um, Is that the one? No. I think that's that's the one I was talking about. But I was just sort of talking about the mention of about it being sanitized. I'm still talking about the sort of like John Wayne one. Yeah, yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The John Wayne one was was very, yeah. You know, all Pick heroes up. doing their best ever. You know, all legends. All um, good, just good being like really, bad. really good guys. They were all good. They was, they, they, they were really good guys. Actually, on about that, on about emotional things. Just while we were saying, there's one bit, and there's this, this, this old guy that's there, and the women are gonna that he's given the women are gonna leave, and and his wife's blind, and he goes, you gotta understand, I gotta go with her, and um, um Travis says, yeah, that's okay, you can go in that, and he goes. His wife goes, no, you won't. You will get up there with you. So I'm not having nothing from you. And really tells Travis off. He's like this big, big, ornery yeah, colonel well, chap. You know? Is it kind of like you're not going to bring dishonor to the yeah, family? You're gonna go there yeah, you're going to go there and you're going to fight for it. Get up there and you fight. Don't you worry about me. I'll be fine. <laughs> my man's as good as any of you. <laughs> Yeah, so. And so uh, when you compare it to like, because you've seen the remake or the new version. The new yeah. version, yeah. Yeah, and when you compare it to that, what do you think? Um, well, the new version, you get a lot of revisionist films now. I think there's there, there's quite a few when it comes to westerns. I mean, they did Geronimo with Wes Studi and some other ones. They've tried to, to readdress the balance of history, I guess. And they showed Davy Crockett as being a politician. And the only reason he went down there really was he wanted to get votes because he was, he was, he was a senator in Tennessee. Oh, yeah. And so he thought, oh, it's a good way to get a lot of publicity, so I get voted. So they played him, like, almost, I know a lot of the American public said, oh, you're playing him like a coward, and wah, 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 and it was all political. And yeah. So so there was a bit of an uproar, so I don't think it did too well. But I think it's a great film. I think it's a really, really good film, the remake. You know? Really? But, yeah, terrific film. Mm. Terrific film. 
Probably, uh, probably better than this. <laughs> but then that's we're, me. We're talking the Dennis Quaid, Billy Bob Thornton one. Billy, Dennis Quaid, Billy Bob Thornton. Who played David Crockett in that one? I can remember. Was it Billy Bob? Or yeah, was I think it? Billy Bob was David, David Crockett. Crockett was Billy, Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sam Houston was yeah. Dennis Quaid, and Jason Patrick. Nobody laugh. Uh, was, Terminator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Terminator Two, I believe. Um, yeah. No, it was Robert Patrick. Oh, Robert. Okay. Jason Patrick. Patrick was in Speed Two. At oh, one Speed point. Two. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry. Let's not hold that against him. He's done some really, really good stuff. Okay, Jason Patrick has done some good stuff. Sleepers, uh, Narc. He's, uh, he's been in good films. The Lost Boys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. All right. Cool. Oh, so um. Okay, this this is going to be interesting because the next film that we're going to be speaking about, which you have spoken, which you have chosen, is a Western, but it's a totally different kind of Western. So we'll get into that in a second. But first of all, Joe, it is time for your second vague clue. Okay, second vague clue. So um, in your mind, you should have this image of uh, a Hollywood movie star, some guy, um, you know, uh, sort of, rushing through the the military hospitals to help people that have been pulled out of the battle in 1944. Okay, I'm now going to flip that on its head and say that this screen legend also won the Academy Award for Best Actress in 1953. (laughs) (laughs) As Sean punches the air, he's like, yes! I think so. I might be too confident. Sean reckons he knows. Best Actress for 1953. Mm. That's it. I think it's when you when you said the first thing. I thought it was a woman. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, I did oh, think it was a woman. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, okay, cool. Um, we will continue in a second, but we will, well, we'll carry on with the rest of the clues. But first of all, Sean, you want to tell us what film it is that you've chosen as a classic from um, the other? Well, for what's your choice today? Okay, my choice. Um, a bit of a we're on westerns because you know I love westerns. And um, it's a film, it's a 1972 film called Ulzana's Raid. Mm-hmm. Um, Burt Lancaster film, who I think, it's funny, Burt Lancaster, when I was younger, I never really rated him that much. But, but in, these, in his later films, I think he's, he's, he's absolutely brilliant. Um, and this is a story, it's about the Apache, Apache Indians that, that break away from the reservation. And basically, it's a small party of Apache Indians, and they basically cause havoc. They go around. Okay. You know, yep. All right, cool. We all tried to find this film this week, and we failed. And if you do an internet search for this film, film, one of the most prominent things that pops up is John Landis, the director, the man who directed what's my favorite film of all time, The Blues Brothers. <laughs> I think you pronounced American Werewolf in London wrong. Yeah, no, no, The Blues Brothers. <laughs> and, you know, if you can talk about Hitchcock, no, I can talk about The Blues Brothers. <laughs> so, do you like The Blues, Blues Brothers? <laughs> oh, no, no, never heard of it. Oh. But, yeah, so, and it's, uh, it's a, vi- a YouTube clip of him talking about how much he, t- he loves this film. And at the risk of letting him do a job for us, here is what John Landis says about Ozana's Raid. Hi, I'm Woody Strode, and you're watching Trailers from Hell. Today we're going to look at the trailer for Ulzana's Raid, a Robert Aldrich western starring Burt Lancaster from the early 70s, and really the first Hollywood studio picture overtly critical of Vietnam. I got three kids and a wife full of one more. I need somebody to bring me in. I was only told to raise the alarm. This is a really brutal picture. It's about an Apache named Ulzana who decides to cause trouble, basically. Uh, He knows there's not much he can do. The white man has come. It's about terrorism. And it's really about the United States going in places it has no business. It ends badly. Uh, You know, it's kind of like the British or the Russians in Afghanistan. You don't get out alive. First Geronimo, then Cochise, and now the bloodiest Apache of them all, Olzana. This is a terrific movie. Burt Lancaster plays, a, you know, the rugged old scout. Bruce Davison, the naive, wet-behind-the-ears lieutenant. Bruce Davison's character is very much like Henry Fonda's character in Fort Apache. He's not quite the Martinet Fonda is, but he is stupid trained in military school and gung-ho and basically causes the death of his entire command. Ulzana, played by Joaquin Martinez, in a really kind of dignified performance, is out to just create as much mayhem among the white folk as possible and very successful. 
Lancaster respects the Apache and specifically respects Ulzana. And this is a a strong story. It's Robert Aldrich, so it's it's brutal. And it really made quite an impression on me when I saw it. Richard Jekyll, he, this is an underrated guy. That guy is such a good actor. Brutal, I can tell you. Um, it deals with... What, how, how shall I say? It deals with George Bush before George Bush. It deals with the arrogance of Dick Cheney. It deals with the, how unprepared we were once we invaded Iraq. It deals with... I can't say naivete as much as ignorance and stupidity. Uh, you wouldn't want to be this woman. If they come back, promise me. You won't let them take me. Promise me. The action in this is extremely well staged. It's very matter of fact. And the military action is done really, I mean, it's like, it's not Battle of Algiers, but it certainly deals with terrorism. It's a good movie. Ulzana. Right, cool. So that was John Landis talking about Ulzana's raid. After that, Sean, anything else to add? <laughs> well, that was pretty comprehensive. I mean, he, he look, says the word brutal, brutal a lot of yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. It's, he it's, also it's introduces himself as Woody Strode. Oh, I know. That's, which that's, I'm desperately that's, trying to find out why he did that. I, I don't know why he did that. I don't know why he did <laughs> I that. I have no idea why he did that. I can't find anything um, online, and it's annoying me. Yeah, it is. It is. It's quite a brut brutal film. You know, it's quite. Um, there's some some nasty things that happen. Um, but uh, I, I mean, as a film, talking. I mean, apart from all that politics aside as a film it is a really really good action film mm -hmm. and, and I've always been interested in um, Native Americans you know because there's so many different different tribes and things um, and they, the Apaches is just this small band and th there's a lot of misconceptions when you go back to old westerns and you see the, all the all the Indians galloping around the the wagon train you know they, they put the wagon train in a circle and all the Indians go Ooh, they all go yeah, yeah, yeah. never happened never happened because Indian chiefs were not... I mean, in, in some of those earlier westerns, the Indian chiefs with the big war bonnets and that, they were yeah, like, yeah. oh, kill the chief, the rest of them. That wasn't really the case. They were just like like wise men. So, And in this film, you know, you, you've got some older people saying, no, you can't go, you can't go, but he obviously goes off with... and That's Ozana who goes off. Yeah, Ozana goes off, and he's got to... He's got to prove himself to his... The, the, the guys that have gone with him, because if mm -hmm. he doesn't, they just leave him. They say, oh, he's no good, he gets us killed. and Yeah. You know, so... In the first one, he has to get some horses, so he, he tries to get some horses, and then you know, so you build up the he builds up his esteem, and then all the young ones are like, "Oh yeah, he's, a, he's yeah, this a is the man. This, this is a great leader. He doesn't get us killed." Was, if if he was a if he was a leader, and you got all your men killed, you'd be like, "Well, we're not going with him." Yeah, you know, he's like, but th there's there's lots of action in it, um, and he mentioned Bruce Davison, great actor. Mm. That's the guy in Willard that we were. Yeah, the guy, like, the like you said, from yeah. the X-Men films the as well, films, the Senator yeah. Kelly guy. Um, and Bert, Bert, this is Bert Langston is brilliant. He's this grizzled old, you know, um, like just a bit cynical, but but he knows the Apache, you know, he's been there so long he knows about it. And, and there's this contrast. Davidson's like, oh, why don't we do this? You know, mister, why don't we? And he sort of says, look, this is what's going to happen. He's going to go in a circle. He's going to... Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's uh, I mean, sorry, sorry to cut you off. Yeah, no, I'm just no, thinking, but if we compare it to like the previous thing, so you have the Alamo, which is kind of like, which Revenge, from what I understand, yeah. it, it it focuses a lot more on the to use it, the white the white folk essentially, white folk. and it's from their point of view, and oh, we're being attacked by all these people, why are they attacking <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. us, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then when you talk about revisionist westerns, it seems like they're trying to revise these old films to be closer to what it actually was like. Like you were saying about the old, the old Apache men being the being like the wise men and all that. And it's trying to yeah. and it's given from even what he was saying, it give it gives the Native Americans just as much screen time and as much uh, as much it validates them just as, as much, much as it. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it does. You know, there's quite a lot of time in that, and there's this big. Um, you know, Ulzana's actually actually taken his son along as well. So he's mm -hmm. got his son along who um, actually, well, I won't put too many spoilers in it, but if you can't find the film, you might have to look at the DVD <laughs> just, or Just tell us the spoilers about it. Tell okay, us yeah, well, basically his son goes and his son gets killed. Yeah. And um, also a few of the good characters on the white side get killed. There's there's a particularly good scene when 
there's like a I, I don't know if he's Dutch, Scandinavian. He's like a farmer. And he's got his his hut dug into a bank. Yeah, and he's like he sends his wife off. What trooper comes along sends his wife off. He says, "Go with the trooper, be safe, and I'm going to stay there." And he locks himself in his cabin. And the Indians come along, and and they shoot his dog, and he fires a few shots, and then they the, the Indians have got a bugle. And they blow the Indian blows a bugle like the cavalry town, you know. Yeah. And and they pretend a few of the Indians run off, and then the guy comes out out of his hut, and he's like, "Oh yeah, they get." Oh, they just get him. Yeah, they get him. So there's 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 and and as I say, there's lots of action in it. If you like action movies, but but probably because just from the clips I've seen, compared it to like you know the old westerns and everything, it just seems like okay to borrow. John Landis's favorite word, brutal. It, it just seems like it's it's not the it's not the pew pew pew. It's not the good guys, bad guys. It's not this. the boys on adventure. It's kind yeah. of like when you see somebody get shot, you're kind of like, okay, no, that guy's dead. Dead, yeah. It appeals to me this film because, <laughs> because of that. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I like yeah. the fact it's, that it's a film it's, about it's, Vietnam. It's, it's, yeah. it's <laughs> not the white. It's not the white and the, the yeah. you know, the white hat and the black hat. Or the, the guy dressed in black. The guy. It's there's. Yeah, because one final thing is like, or just about it is because I haven't seen the film, but just from what's been said about it and from the clips I've seen, and the the whole idea of the story of essentially the Native American fighting back and refusing to take it lying down, and it, you see you see the point of view. I saw the film American Sniper the other day, yeah, which is really all about um, everybody going into Iraq and stuff, and whatever people say about it or anything like that. There's bits where you see them walking around Iraq, and you just end up having this idea of. This is a bit of a it's a bit of a violation, like when they're going to people's houses and they're throwing things yeah, out and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And it gives this, which I did, I didn't really expect from Clint Eastwood. It gives a sort of balanced view of saying, "Hey, look, we're not always we're, we're not the good we're not necessarily the good guys." Good here. It's guys, interesting yeah. that you say that. I haven't seen the, the the film, but I got the impression from all the all the marketing from what people have said is that it was very pro-America. No, is it no, not? Is it, 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 it is not. It is not. It is not no. pro-America at all. And it seems like Ozana's raid as like what journalists is like what is one of the first films that started this thing of Americans being critical of themselves. Um, and their foreign policy, so yeah. to say. I suppose there's precedent with uh, well, Clint Eastwood making flags of our fathers and yeah. the sands of Iwo Jima. I, I mean, if you think, 72, in, in 1972, I mean, the Americans pulled out of Vietnam in 73, so, mm. you know, so it, it, it was obviously... It was towards the end. Yeah, it? it was towards the end. But can I just mention something about the director of this film? Yeah, I was hoping you would. Okay, quickly. Uh, quickly. I have to say quickly then, Joe. <laughs> We've got about you, 10 you minutes to the end of the show. Go on, oh, he's, Aldridge. He's, he's, a, he's a legend. The Great two films. of my favourite Betty Davis films, Hush Hush, Sweet Charlotte, Whatever Happened to mm. Baby Jane. I imagine you're a fan of uh, Apache. Yeah, you? yeah, Apache's yeah. a good, good film. Uh, yeah, the guy. The guy made Perhaps some. we could get a few more. Uh, there'll probably be a few more John Aldridge films yeah, sure as the shows go on. Oh, so, yeah. The so, Dirty Dozen. Yeah. yeah. John Aldridge, wasn't he a play, player for Liverpool? Richard. Robert, Robert, Aldridge. <laughs> Robert Aldridge. Sorry, <laughs> Robert Aldridge, yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting excited. I, was like, I think I've heard that name before. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah Robert okay. Aldridge, sorry. All right, Joe, quickly, do you want to give us your third clue? Okie dokie. Right, this, um, every now and then I give one of the clues um, in the form of a quote from this movie legend talking about themselves. <clears throat> Today you'll have to imagine me uh, reading this out in the voice of a female. Uh, I can't really do a very good impression, so bear with me. I don't have sex appeal and I know it. As a matter of fact, I think I'm rather funny looking. My teeth are funny for one thing and I have none of the attributes usually required for a movie queen, including the shapeliness. Okay, okay. All right, cool. I'm going to keep my father dry. Sean wrote a name down on a piece of paper after the first clue, and he's put it in the corner of the table here. So, uh. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> that is, I have, I have one, but the person I'm thinking of, we've already had before on, this, on this quiz. Ooh. The person I'm thinking of, we've already had before, so I'm thinking it, you couldn't have done the same person twice, but never mind. Anyway, now <laughs> on to the final section of the show, which is called Exception to the Rule. And Exception to the Rule is a... Um, Essentially, the show is called They Don't Make Them Like They Used To, and we pick a show, we pick a film that's made post-1980 that we think it could stand, it could stand without any problem beside any of the classics that we've spoken about today. And seeing as we spoke about Rebecca at the beginning of the film, there's a modern film that was, been, that was made last year that when I was watching Rebecca made me think, oh my word, this is kind of like... It's so, this film is so influenced by Rebecca, but it's taking like a different angle. And it's almost like a film made about the cat. It's almost like a film made about the character of Rebecca herself. The prequel to Rebecca. Essentially, essentially. And 
It's a good thing that we don't have that much time because it's the kind of film that you just can't say much without giving away a spoiler. I'm mm. giving away a massive spoiler that re- refuses the whole film. So all I'll say is the film is called Gone Girl. It's a great film. Go, I think watching Rebecca and Gone Girl together would make an excellent double bill. And seeing as this has been a bit of a dark week and everything like that, I, this, the soundtrack to Gone Girl is pretty dark. I decided that I was just going to ignore playing any song from it and come up with an extremely tenuous link. So everybody, from <laughs> in honor of Gone Girl, here is the band Switchfoot with the song Gone. Yep, that was Switchfoot with Gone. And now, just a couple of things. Not much to say about Gone Girl, but I just like to say that it's... The reasons I think it deals with a lot of the similar themes of appearances. Like, people get married, and they get married, and they go into a house, and they look, it looks all nice from the outside, but you don't really see what's going on behind the scenes, as Rebecca does. Um, it doesn't give you anybody easy to root for. I think in this film, there's almost anybody you look at, you could think, okay, they're an idiot, they're an idiot, they're an idiot. I can see their point of view. I can see what they're going for. And um, I think Hitchcock would have loved to get his grubby mitts on Gone Girl. Mm. I think he would have loved to have taken that film and done something with it because it's very much in his wheelhouse. So much so that I think the guys who are actually directing Gone Girl and writ- written, the, the writer and the director of Gone Girl, are now taking on a Hitchcock classic. They're making up a new version of Strangers on the Train. Mm, I heard that, yeah. Yeah, they're making it. So I think it's, it's just quite funny that I feel... I feel that they, even though they don't say it, I think behind the scenes, they were very, very aware of what it was they were doing and taking on a Hitchcock film or taking on a Hitchcock-style story and making a film of it. But that's it for me for Gone Girl. It's a good movie. It was all right. I look at it as a metaphor for relationships, like Tozin was saying. It's about what goes on uh, when they're not out in in public a lot of the time. And that was all about being (laughs) in the public public eye. Yeah. 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 Um, I just think one thing and the other and everyone else, you know, a true story what goes on behind yeah I can't imagine um, Ben Affleck being in a Hitchcock film I think he would have recast him with Lawrence Olivia <laughs> well probably probably but I, I could definitely imagine Lawrence Olivia in Gone Girl yeah that would have been good alright cool so quickly final final clue Joe okay this is the one that's going to give it away I deliberately made this last one relatively easy in 1988 this screen legend became the special ambassador to the United Nations UNICEF Children's Fund Helping children in Latin America and Africa until 1993. I'm pretty sure we've had her before. Have we? Yeah. Okay. I'm just going to say, I think it's Audrey Hepburn. What do you reckon? <laughs> Sean's, Sean's written something else down. Yeah, I've written something else down. But it could be Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, I suppose so. But I've written something else down. But no, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go with mine, I think. You think so? Okay, who do you know. reckon, Sean? Brrr, I was thinking... Oh, I don't know, you got me now. No, I don't know, Ingrid Bergman. <laughs> Ingrid... Oh, no, you haven't done that, have you? What is it, Joe? Audrey Hepburn. Oh, well done. Well done, that's one from last week. And I didn't reuse any of the clues. You didn't, no, that's the thing. That's what I thought it would yeah, throw some people yeah, off. You, you didn't use any of the clues, but I was like, I'm sure it's the same person, but yeah, you do. well done. Ah, well done. If it had been Ingrid Bergman, I would have been so livid because yeah. I kept saying Ingrid Bergman for like three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not going to repeat too many screen legends, but occasionally to keep people on their toes, I think it's a, a, an interesting way of doing it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to us. To us. Um, listen to us today and here's to everybody getting out of the hospital and getting back to your loved ones at home till then we wish you good health and remember that they just do not make them like they used to